Let's open our Bibles to uh, Psalm 68. Something a little bit uh, different is we're going to have a study on angels this morning and also a prophecy that's fulfilled in the New Testament that comes out of Psalm 68. Uh, I've entitled the morning's message, The Chariots of God, and it comes from verse 17, Psalm 68. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. The Lord is among them, as in Sinai, in the holy place. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. And blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with his benefits, the God of our salvation, Selah. If you just go back to the first couple of verses, Psalm 68 is really what was quoted When Moses would begin a day, as they traveled through the wilderness, Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, each day Moses would rise up and he would say, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee from before thee. And um, it's being repeated here, but probably with um, Moses' statement back from Numbers 10, 35, Max. Matter of fact, in my Bible, in the corner after verse 1, that's what it says. Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. Um, As you look at verse 17, and it says, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. A better translation in verse 17, where it said even thousands of thousands, uh, the Greek word from the Strong's Concordance there is matched. In the Hebrew, it's shenan. And a better translation, some of you have uh, the King James Version. It doesn't say thousands of thousands. It says thousands of angels. And in this case, that's the proper translation. So the idea here is how many angels are there? It's begging the question. There's two places in Scripture that try to describe it some way. And in Daniel 7, um, Daniel had a vision of heaven. And he said, as he came forth before him, there were a thousand thousands that ministered to him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. It says the court was seated, and the books were open. Evidently referring to the great white throne judgment when it says in Revelation 20, the books were opened, and those who uh, died in their sins uh, were judged according to the things written in the books. So the question then comes, also Revelation in chapter 5, John was there and he was in heaven, and he also uses the same uh, phraseology by saying 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Basically, an unimaginable number of these created beings. Where did they come from? What's their purpose? Is where we're headed this morning. Where they came from, that's told to us in the book of Colossians chapter 1, but also in John chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he was before all creation, and um, all things were created by him, whether they're in heaven, whether they're on the earth, whether they're visible, whether they're invisible, whether they're thrones or dominions or principalities and powers. And this is where the angels come in. A principality and a power is stating that the angelic realm was created none other than through the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1 verse 3 says the same thing. 
All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So Jesus is the creator of the angelic realm. He created the angels. Uh, Just getting back from Arizona, you see the guys in white shirt and ties walking the streets all the time. Then you have your Mormon missionaries. And when I'm in contact with them, I like to bring up the subject of the angels and Lucifer and Jesus being brothers. And uh, getting into the scriptures um, about Colossians 1, I said, well, this is what the Bible teaches here, that Jesus created Lucifer. They weren't co-laborers or co-brothers or even equals. God the Father is God the Son, and Lucifer is simply a created being, and we'll be looking at that in more detail here this morning. Also interesting to me is that when you think it through, um, it appears that they had to exist before Genesis 1.1. And uh, I would not be dogmatic about that, but when you study the book of Job, uh, Job is challenged, being challenged by um, God uh, as Job is trying to figure out what was taking place in his life. He challenges Job, and he says, Now, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you understand. And uh, who determined its measurements? Uh, to what were the foundations fashioned? By the way, who laid the cornerstone, Job? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The, the Hebrew wording there is used three times in the book of Job and once in Genesis chapter 6, and it refers to the same thing, angels. So, evidently, Angels were present when Genesis 1-1 took place, and he's telling Job that they all shouted for joy and they sang. Now, there appears also to be an order of authority in the angelic realm, both on the ones that fell and also on the ones that have stayed loyal and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to pick out three. I want to talk about Michael. I want to talk about Gabriel. And I want to talk about Lucifer, because these are the only ones that are mentioned by name in the Bible. And so let's just go by the ones that are named. This is an exhaustive study, and I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface as we're looking at two uh, things that we want to um, bring out of the study this morning, a study, a biblical study on angels, and then verse 18, this prophecy that's fulfilled in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So let's begin with the angels, and let me have you turn to the book of Ezekiel uh, for our first look at um, probably the one with the most seniority in in heaven before the fall. So Ezekiel chapter 28 is a prophecy against the prince of Tyre. Now there really was a prince of Tyre. And he was a person that existed. And the first uh, 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 10 verses is about him. But then the language changes in verse 12. And it says, now I want you to take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre. Now there's a lot of implications here. You have a literal prince of Tyre. And then it says there's a king that's also being mentioned. They are not the same. One is a person 
and the other one is Lucifer. And the reason I know that is because he was in the garden. Let's read about him in verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardix, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbles and your pipes was prepared for you, notice, on the day you were created. Lucifer is a created being, and um, before his fall, evidently, a creature that was created in perfect beauty. Uh, Our world is enamored with um, beautiful people. And, uh, you you know, check out any (laughs) news anchor, whether it's CNN or Fox or whatever. And, you know, they're they're looking for um, the best-looking people uh, to fill that position. And um, I think it's common knowledge. I'm not, I'm just stating a fact, not, showing any favoritism or or anything, but the point here is the most beautiful creature that ever existed happened to be the devil. And we just don't think in those terms. Not only that, but he was full of wisdom. He's been studying human nature and mankind for 6,000 years. So don't think he doesn't have a bead on us and he understands how we work. He does. And so the reason we study about him is that the New Testament has a lot to say about how we are to interact with him. All right. So it goes on to say, you were perfect in your ways, verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created, and then you have this word, till. Iniquity was found in you. Now, I can't even begin to fathom this, that there was perfection, and that there was holiness throughout God's uh, universe with millions of angels. Revelation 12 says that when he fell, one third of all the other angels fell with him. And you wonder, what took place? How did that unravel? What persuasion did he use to cause people to turn on the Father and actually join him? He had to have a lot of authority. He had to be very persuasive. We read in verse 18, by the abundance of your trading, we were talking between services that there was a a dinner six group that were talking about these same scriptures last night. And when they got into the the abundance of trading, uh, they looked it up and discovered that it, it has more to do not so much with business trading, but actually in the interaction of deceiving people to be... Uh, turned against the Father and being drawn towards Lucifer himself. You'll have to run that one down on on your own. But the end result was you became filled with violence within and you sinned. So here's the first sin that's ever recorded. Comes from the most beautiful creature ever created who is full of wisdom. And sin entered God's perfect universe. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I will, I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, 
You corrupted your wisdom from the, for the sake of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. The disciples came back after their first missionary journey all excited. They were saying, Lord, it's unbelievable that um, even the devils listen to us. And the Lord said, I beheld Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The Lord is saying to the guys, I saw what he actually fell. And then he told them this. He said, don't be too excited because you have authority over demons, that you can cast demons out of people. He says, but be excited about this, that your name is written in the book of life. That's something to be excited about. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? You can do better. That's better. That's better. You guys are going to heaven. You got that? Your names are written in the book. That's something to be excited about. So even though we get used in ministry today, that's great. Praise the Lord we get to be used in ministry. But the real joy and what the thing to be excited about is I have a mom and dad who are in heaven. I'm going to see them again someday. My name's written down in the book. When you accept Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, I tell people two things. Number one, you just got your name put in a book. And it's called the book of life. Number two... The devil's going to be after you. And I tell them straight out. They need to know from the get-go. And the parable of the sower, the Bible said, as soon as the word of God was planted into the heart of that person, then comes the devil and tries to take the word out of their heart lest they would believe and be saved. So all of a sudden you go from um, a nature that has just one nature, satisfied the lust of my flesh, to now Jesus coming, the Holy Spirit in me, now I got two natures. And the Bible says they're at war with each other. So we got this war going on. Our, our three enemies, um, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the world, the devil, these are our enemies. And so we find, where did this all start? What caused the break? What caused the split to happen? Well, Isaiah tells us that what was in his heart was he wanted the position that God had. Isaiah tells us that I want to be like the Most High. We call it the five eyes. And that's what he said in his heart. And that's what he uh, esteemed to achieve. Except the Lord just said, that's enough of that. And he cast him down to the ground. Jesus refers to it in the New Testament. We're also told, um, I don't want to spend too, too much time with him, that um, uh, he is the one who will reappear again, and he possessed, we're, we're told in the, in the scriptures that the devil himself really only possessed two, he could have possessed more, but um, Judas Iscariot, it says the devil entered him, and it also, I believe, um, with the Antichrist. So that's yet future tense. All right, enough about this one. There's two other ones that are named, Michael and Gabriel. Um, Michael is mentioned four times, three times in the book of Daniel, and once in the New Testament in the book of Jude. He seems to be a warrior. Not seems to be, he is a warrior. And in Daniel 10, Daniel's been praying, and uh, he's used to having his prayers answered. 
And in Daniel 9, when he prayed, Gabriel shows up. I actually timed the prayer. I was reading it. There's 19 verses. And I was reading the prayer. And, and um, um, when Michael shows up, that would be Gabriel. When Gabriel shows up, it's, it was an instantaneous thing that happened. My point is, he's used to having his prayers answered right away. He, he went and fasted and prayed for 21 days because he wasn't getting an answer. And what was going on in the spiritual realm was as soon as he began to pray, Michael, uh, was dispa- uh, an angel, was dispatched. But I'll read uh, verse 13 of Daniel 10. He says, um, but the prince of the king of Persia withheld me 21 days and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the king of Persia. Now, interesting, the angel that is mentioned here is the angel oversight of Persia. Do you know what Persia is today? It's modern-day Iran. Israel's number one is, uh, enemy is really Iran and Russia. And evidently, there is an angelic force called the... Uh, um, the king of Persia, that's a demon, that was holding up Daniel's prayer request and was able to do so until Michael shows up. And when Michael shows up, he was able to complete his task and his mission. So um, he's mentioned again um, in, in uh, Daniel chapter 12, and this is yet to uh, be fulfilled And I'm reading verse 1 of Daniel 12 right now. At that time, Michael shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over your people. Well, if there's an angel that's over the site of Persia, Michael is the one who stands watch over the people of Israel. That's what that verse is telling us. And there shall be a time of trouble. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble in another verse in the Bible. Such as never since there was a nation. Even to that time, and at that time your people will be delivered, everyone who is found in the book. We're talking about the great tribulation period. And uh, Michael, in, in Revelation chapter 12, it says that the devil was cast out of heaven and that uh, Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels and the devil and his angels lost the fight and he was cast to the earth. That's Revelation Chapter 12. One other place that Michael is mentioned is in the little book of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. And um, in verse 9, it says, Michael the archangel. So now we know his title. In contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring a railing accusation against him. He just said, the Lord rebuke you. Well, that sure causes my brain to spin. First of all, I want to know why they were fighting over Moses' body. All we know is that when Moses died, it tells us he was, the Lord buried him on Mount Nebo. And evidently, when the Lord was doing that, the devil shows up and says, no, I want the body. That's what's being implied here. And then all of a sudden, Michael shows up and goes, hands off. You can't do that. And the, the whole context of the of the book of Jude is judgment is coming on false teachers. 
And what this is here is simply an example to respect authority, even if it's the devil, in this case with Michael. Let me read it to you. He dared not bring, this is Michael, dared not bring a railing accusation against Lucifer, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. And he left it at that. And so he's mentioned four times uh, in the scriptures. Let's move on to Gabriel. He's mentioned four times also, two times in the book of Daniel and two times in the New Testament. The two times in Daniel, I'll just make reference to one that's probably one of the most important prophetic messages given to any human being. And I'm talking about Daniel's 70th week and Daniel chapter 9. Again, Daniel was praying. Uh, He knew that they were going to be in Babylon for 70 years. 70 years had come, 70 years had gone, time to go home. Started to pray, Lord, when are we going home? And all of a sudden, Gabriel shows up. And in verse 21, it says, while I was praying, Gabriel, who I had seen in the vision at the beginning, caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Not only did he tell Daniel that it's time to go home, but he gave him the very day that Jesus the Messiah would come, right down to the day. He talks about the abomination of desolation. He talks about an event that is uh, Daniel 9, verse 27. That information is going to be vital information for those living during the tribulation. Jesus makes reference to it in Matthew 24. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, points him right back to this verse right here. Who gave it to him? Well, Gabriel. Gabriel is a messenger. He wasn't only a messenger to Daniel, but he was chosen by the Lord to give the best news in his that time of year to a gal named Mary who lived in Galilee, Luke one twenty six, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to Mary. What is he? He's more of a messenger where Michael appears to be more of a warrior. All three of them are heavyweights, and again, I'll make the note that they're the only angels that we're aware of that are given names and named in the scripture. Well, Believe me, we could be here for a long time studying on about angels. I had to be very selective. I had to uh, uh, pick just what I thought would be necessary so we could get a good feel of a a study on angels. But from Genesis to Revelation, you're going to find them. I mean, you can't get out of the first couple chapters of Genesis and uh, Adam and Eve are told to leave the Garden of Eden. And what does the Lord do? He puts cherubim plural, with a flaming sword so that Adam and Eve can't get back in to get access to the tree of life. So that's where they first come into the picture. Um, We have also in Genesis when we have Jacob um, on the run, away from home his first night. And Genesis 28, he goes to sleep and he has a dream And in verse 12, it says, Behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and it reached the top to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, up and down. And he saw this. 
And behold, the Lord stood above that and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. And the land where you lie, I'm going to give to you and your descendants. Let me say this for the record. Israel belongs to the Jewish people that are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're not going to give me an amen on that. And they're going to, it's going to be the dispute. Zechariah says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. The spiritual warfare on a political level that's going on in the world today is all about the Temple Mount, and it's all about Israel. And um, the war that it exists, and I'll just do a little sidetrack here. When you study human history, um, it all comes down to God keeping this promise right here. So the only card, really, that the devil can play when you think it through is to get rid of the Jewish people. Now we say, does this ever, have we seen this in history? It's the whole book of Esther's about, the annihilation and the call for the annihilation of the Jews. World War II, Adolf Hitler, Eichmann was put in charge of what they called the final solution. And that was the extinction and the removal of all Jews. Six million were killed at that time. And yet Jesus said in Matthew 24, there's going to come even a worse time than that, called the time of Jacob's trouble. And so we find that um, Satan's card that he has to play, and he will fail at this, is to destroy Israel. That's why Israel's gathered back in the land today. That's why Iran is in the news on a daily basis. We just gave them seven more months so they can make their nuclear weapon, and, uh, you know, Israel's hand is going to be forced to be played one of these days, and now I am getting sidetracked. Now I need to get back. All right, let's turn. If, if uh, Psalm 68, verse 17 says, the chariots of God, there is uh, in Second Kings chapter 6, let's turn there quickly, so you need to go back to the book of Kings, an event where we do see angelic Chariots of God. The setting in Second Kings is uh, the king of Syria would make plans to attack Israel, but every time he made a plan, it would be thwarted because somebody would tell Israel ahead of time what was coming down the pike, and they could get ready for it. So when you look at verse 11, this greatly troubled the king, and he said, who's the rat? Who's the guy who's ratting me out? Who's, who's telling Israel my plans? And the answer to that in verse 12 was, <clears throat> his servant said, none, my lord, O king. It's Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. You ain't getting away with nothing. Elijah knows exactly what you're doing, even behind closed doors, and he's telling the king of Israel. And so, to take care of this problem, verse 13, he says, where is he? And they said, he's in Dothan. He said, get, get the army, we're going to Dothan. They go, they surround the city, so that when Elijah wakes up in the morning, his servant goes out, and he goes back in, and he says, Master, Master, alas, what are we going to do? Because they were surrounded by the, the Syrian army. And notice what Elisha says. So he answered, he says, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. 
And Elijah prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. The rest of the story is the Lord says, I pray you guys are all blinded, and he blinds them, and uh, the battle was the Lord. Well, this tells us something about um, the capacities of us as human beings, but also the capacity of angels. Evidently, they can appear at will. They can appear in a supernatural form, or they can appear as ordinary men. That's what the Bible teaches. On the other hand, on the human side, Elijah could clearly see them when his servant couldn't. And he asked that his eyes would be opened. So as we sit here this morning, there's probably a whole lot more going on than what we're looking at and, and when we see each other. There's a whole lot more going on in that realm that we sense sometimes, but we're not really privy to be able to see it. I think of Balaam, for instance. You know, here was an angel ready to take off Balaam's head, but the donkey saw the angel. And stopped. That's great. One of the greatest stories in the Bible. <laughs> Balaam starts having a conversation with his donkey. And the Lord opened up the donkey's mouth and he's talking back and forth. Why are you beating me? You've never beat me before. Well, because you're stubborn and you're doing... And it's hilarious, the communication that's going on here. The donkey said, look, I saved your neck. There's an angel here who wanted to take you out. And then the Lord opened up Balaam's eyes. So what does that tell us? That... In this realm, um, angels can be seen or not seen at their choosing. And uh, as God wills, he allows people to see or not see angels. Now let me just tell you that I personally believe I've, I don't know. I have to stand before you this morning and say, I don't know if I've ever seen an angel before. And the reason I say that is it tells us that we are to be careful how we entertain strangers because some of you have entertained angels and you didn't even know about it. That's what the scriptures teach. We've entertained angels and we were unaware of it. And so um, I don't know if I've ever seen an, an angel or not. I know that their purpose, um, let's, turn to, um, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1 to get a look at... Um, the purpose that angels were created for. Hebrews chapter one. And while you're turning, I'll just quote Revelation 14. Eventually, angel, an angel, is going to preach the gospel. Right now, we're the witness. We're to preach the gospel now. God could have used an angel when he saved Cornelius. I mean, Cornelius was praying, an angel appears and says, God's observed your good works, that you uh, care for the poor, and he's answered your prayer, and he sent me to tell you to go get Peter, and he's going to tell you how to get saved. Well, I think about that, and I go, why do that? I mean, you got an angel in front of you? Spill the beans, angel, let him know how to get saved. He doesn't, because this, during this time we're living in right now, um, God has chosen to use men and women to be 
witnesses and lights for the gospel. Someone want to give me an amen on that? Okay, so there, that's our calling. But there comes a time when the church is going to be removed at the rapture. Now who's going to preach the gospel? Immediately after the rapture, two witnesses appear, Revelation chapter 11. And they are the ones that witness. But they're killed after three and a half years, and then they're taken into heaven. Now who's going to preach the gospel? Well, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 11, it says, John says, Then I saw an angel flying in the heavens, preaching the everlasting gospel to every tribe, every tongue, every people, so that the whole world is going to hear the gospel by one angel. Check me out. Revelation 14, verses 6 to 11. A couple angels follow him afterwards. I believe it fulfills Matthew 24, verse 15, which says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached unto all the earth, and then the end's going to come. And I believe that's the fulfillment of that. So one of the purposes of, of angels during the tribulation will be preaching, but right now that's our job. All right, if you're in Hebrews 1, picking it up in verse 6, talking about the Lord, the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. One of the reasons angelic realm was created so that they could observe the holiness of a holy God who was worthy to be praised. And that's what they did. They were created as beings to worship their creator. And of the angels, he said, which makes his angels spirits and ministers of flames of fire. But to his son, he says, verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness. You have hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. Praise the Lord to that. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools? Then commenting on angels, the last verse here. Are they not ministers sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Wow. We have a verse that actually tells us that you really do have a guardian angel. Think about it. That's what's being said. What what is the purpose of angels? Are they not ministering spirits sent forth to those who are heirs of salvation? I'm an heir of salvation. What does that mean? That means that I've had an angel from time to time or my own that has gotten me out of some tough spots. Maybe I was held up for five minutes. And if I wouldn't have been held up for five minutes, I might have been head on with a train or maybe front-ended with a truck. I don't know. I've wondered sometimes when I thought they should have been around and they weren't around or they're supposed to be around, where were you when I needed you type thing? But they were probably there just there and um, uh, the Lord was allowing it to, to take place. Let me just give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about here. 
Paul was told by the Lord when he got saved that he would witness the kings and rulers. They're getting ready to launch to go to Rome, but it's getting close to winter about this time of year. And Paul had a talk with the the captain of the ship. This is not a good time to sail. Storms are real bad this time of year. Bad idea. Let's not go. Didn't listen to Paul. They sailed anyway. And they ran into such a storm that Paul knew they were going to sink. And uh, in Acts chapter 27, an angel appears to Paul and says, Paul, I urge you, and this is, this is what I'm quoting Paul now. He's talking to the men on the ship. He says, I urge you guys to take heart because there's not going to be any loss of life among you, but only the ship. This ship is going down. That's what he was saying. But you're not going to. And he was telling them that because the angel had told him that. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, whom I belong to and whom I, who I serve, saying, don't be afraid, Paul, for you must go before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Boy, my mind wanders with this, this one too. And I'll tell you why. Sometimes you're going to be the only guy in the ship with people that you work with. They're not saved, and their ship is going down. And if they go down and if they don't hear the gospel, they're not going to get saved. So what does the Lord do? He creates a storm. He puts people in difficult situations, and then he puts you in the boat with them. So you can tell them what? Well, this ship is going down, but if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he'll save you. Oh, yeah, you might lose your ship, but you yourself will be saved. And I see that here, that when he needed divine intervention, well, the Lord sent Paul, saying, Paul, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah, the ship's going to go down, but you're not. And by the way, God loves these other guys, too, and he wants them to be saved, too. So tell them, ship's down, but you're saved. Jesus, in his most difficult hour on this planet, was the Garden of Gethsemane. I can't even begin to imagine the agony of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And that's what was happening to our Savior that night when he was praying in Gethsemane. He was being crushed to the point where the oil of his blood dripped out of him. He wanted out, and he said, Father, if it's possible to take this cup from me, that's what I'm praying for. But he says, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. And he was so distraught, and this is found, it's not in all the Gospels, it's in Luke's Gospel, where it talks about an angel. It's not in the other Gospels. Luke twenty-two forty-three. Then an angel appeared to Jesus from heaven and strengthened him. And he was able to go through and carry on with all that went on the rest of of that night. We find angels appearing in the book of Acts. Um, We find them appearing when Jesus arose from the dead. The women went there in the morning. Here's two angels saying, why are you guys seeking the living among the dead? and asking them a question. He is not here, he's risen. Angels told the women that. When he, after 40 days being on this planet, and it was time for him to ascend to heaven, Acts 1 verse 9 tells us that um, while while he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, 
and a cloud received them out of their sight. And, and while they looked steadfastly towards heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood, behind, stood by them in white apparel. Well, they looked like men, but they're really angels. And he said, you men of Galilee, why do you, why do you gaze into heaven? This same Jesus who has taken up from you into heaven, he's going to come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The same place he left from, according to Zechariah 12 and 14, he's going to put his foot right back on the same place that he left from. And that hasn't happened yet. All right. Um, I'm going to leave uh, the, the ministry of the ones that are on our side. And by the way, I like the, I like the numbers. Uh, that We have them outnumbered two to one. Only one-third fell, so that means two of them Two-thirds of them are still serving the Lord on our side. <laughs> but we still have one-third of these fallen angels. Some of them have access to this planet and have access to interfere or try to interfere with the affairs of your life. And that's what I want to talk about next. John tells us that they have come to steal, to kill, and to destroy and it um, also goes on to say that someday we're going to judge these angels. The angels <clears throat> in Jesus' ministry, one-third of what Jesus did was cast demons out of people that were demon-possessed. I'll just allude to one. It's my, one of my favorite stories, and I can point it out whenever we visit Israel. We're on the Sea of Galilee. There was, we call them the man of the tombs. He was so demon-possessed, he had supernatural strength. The Bible tells us they would put chains on him, he'd just rip them right off. And that he was tormented day and night, and he lived in the tombs. And then Jesus came by one day, and he set this man free. But before he was freed, he addressed the man, and he said, what's your name? And he was addressing the demon, not the man. And the answer came back, legion because we're many. And uh, the Lord commanded them to depart. It's an interesting conversation that goes on because they pleaded with Jesus. Oh, they knew who he was. They said, oh, Jesus, son of the most high God, um, have you come to torment us before the time? And they said, don't send us into the abuso. What's the abuso? Well, it's the pit that some demons are incarcerated in. They did not want to go there. And so the Lord says, out of them, and he allowed them to go into the, as you know, the herd of pigs that were there at that time. It's the first case of deviled ham ever in the world. We had devils entering the pigs and they deviled ham. I'll explain it later, you'll get it later. It's an old joke, I've been telling it for years. Some of you are rolling my eyes, your eyes. When we're on the Sea of Galilee, there's only one place this could have happened. And uh, we know where the land of Gadarenes is, but there's only one place where you, that actually goes down and it's steep enough, and we can say there's an A spot. 2,000 years ago, Jesus cast a legion out of one man. He was found with a sound mind and a clear head, and he said, Lord, let me go with you. And he says, no. Interesting. The Lord says, no. So I want you to go home. I want you to tell people in your home who set you free. 
And everybody in town knew who this guy was. And uh, when he was set free, don't you think he was a witness in his hometown? You betcha he was. Because everybody knew he was a guy that could break chains and he was out of his head. Who did that? Oh, Jesus set me free. And the, and the demons that he dealt with, they all drowned and they were probably in the abuso. All right, so we, we're told that um, they are reserved a judgment. In Jude chapter one, let's talk a little bit about their fate. And uh, Jude is only one chapter. The whole chapter is about false teachers and what's gonna happen to them. And verse six, it says, the angels who kept not their proper domain, that means they were in heaven at one time, that was their proper domain, but left their abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Well, what does that tell us? It means that there's some of these hierarchy demons that are so fierce that they're only gonna be released when it's time for judgment. It could also mean, in Revelation we're talked about demons being freed that are by the Euphrates River. And that's in Revelation, you're gonna look that one up on your own. And they weren't released until the middle and the last half of the tribulation period. It could be a reference to that too. But Jude clearly tells us that there were angels that were in heaven at one time, they rebelled, and that God has a lock and key until they're going to be judged. All right, if you go back to uh, chapter 68 of um, our study this morning, I want you to know we just made it through one verse. And we have one more verse to go. And some of you are going, oh no, three o'clock in the afternoon, don't worry. Verse 18 My Bible is what I call a prophecy Bible. And if there's a prophecy in here about Jesus, it's highlighted in red. So this one is highlighted in red. It says, you have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord might dwell there. This is a prophecy. As we study the Bible, one of the goals is again that you see Jesus in everything, even Psalm 68. So let's go to where this is fulfilled now in the New Testament, to the book of Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, I'll I'll give you a minute to get there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one right in the the seat in front of you there. I'd like you to see this as we, we find it. Ephesians four. In David's time, 3,000 years ago, this was a prophecy. For us today in 2014, soon to be 2015, it's already happened. It's been fulfilled. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, talking about the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven, a lot of people don't realize that the resurrection is in the Old Testament. Remember uh, when uh, Paul was saying, or Peter was saying, that he rose again according to the scriptures? Well, here's one of them right here. This is about the ascension. And if you look at verse eight, it says, therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive 
and he gave gifts to men. And in my margin, in my Bible, it says Psalm 68, verse 18. Here's the fulfillment of that. And now more clarification, verse 9 and 10. Now he ascended. What does it mean that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. But we know that Jesus didn't go into heaven till the third day. So how could he be in paradise? Paradise, therefore, isn't heaven. It's not. Paradise is the place where Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Daniel, David, the prophets, all those who believed in the promise. It's talked about in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, these all died in faith. Who? Old Testament saints. But they didn't receive the promise. Well, what was the promise? Heaven. They desired a better place, a heavenly kingdom. They died with that hope. But they couldn't go to heaven because Jesus had not yet died on the cross. So when we read here, and it says, what does it mean that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Well, he kept his promise of the thief on the cross. He was in paradise that day. It was called Abraham's bosom. It's talked about in Luke chapter 16. And it was a place of comfort. And uh, he who descended is also the one who rose far above all things that he might fulfill all things. Now, after he went to heaven and set the captives free from this place called paradise or Abraham's bosom, what did he do? Well, before Jesus was crucified and teaching about the Holy Spirit, he says, it's absolutely essential that I die and go to heaven. Because if I don't, I can't send back the comforter. Now, when Jesus got to heaven, it says about gifts here, that's exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was given. So now we read in verse 11, And he himself gave some to be apostles. Now, this is a gift. As I said to the first service this morning, I personally don't believe that there are apostles today because I believe that you had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection in order to qualify. I wouldn't be dogmatic about that. That's my personal opinion. But some prophets, they still exist. Some evangelists, we have them today, praise the Lord. Some pastors and teachers I believe these should be together and they shouldn't be one or the other. I believe every pastor should have the gift of teaching. Why? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. So we come here, what do we do? Well, I'm a pastor teacher, I teach. And the idea is that you would be edified and that you would grow in your faith and you would mature in Christ. For how long? Until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Doesn't mean you're gonna become perfect, but you're gonna change from who you are a little bit more, a little bit, as long as you hang in there with the Lord, as long as you keep studying the Bible and worshiping the Lord, guess what? You're going to be changed. And with the changing will come maturity, and with maturity will come discernment. So we read the next verse, so that you're no longer children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Every new thing that blows through town, you're saying, I'm not buying it. 
I know what the Bible says about that. I've been around for a long time. I remember when Pastor Chuck talked to some young pastors that were in the Calvary Chapel movement. They wanted to put the emphasis on signs and wonders rather than the teaching chapter by chapter and verse by verse of the Bible. Chuck said, fine, just do it somewhere else. And so that's how the vineyard movement started with John Wimber. I was there when it happened. I still got the letter Pastor Chuck sent out from 1981. If you want to put the emphasis there, fine, but don't call yourself a Calvary Chapel. Our emphasis is on teaching. Well, it went from signs and wonders, and then a couple years later, are you familiar or heard the expression, the Toronto blessing and holy laughter? Well, that was the next thing. That, that was the other doctrine that was being tossed around, and Christians were tossed around because they weren't being taught where the priorities should be. And then there was the Kansas City Prophets. Uh, Mary's in the process right now of, of doing a radio program on them. That was a big thing for a while. Uh, we actually had two or three families just pick up and move out because they thought they got a prophetic word uh, to be involved with the Kansas City Prophets. Well, they crashed and burned. And then you can take it all the way down to Brownsville. We had a church locally in town here that got caught up into that. And I think it was very destructive of what it, what it did because they went down there to catch the latest doctrine that was tossing them to and fro. And I could go on and on, but I've been around long enough to see that if you get solid in this with the teaching, you become mature, you become discerning, and you say, I'm not buying that. That doesn't sound right for some reason. And that's what the Bible says here. By those who would take advantage of you and deceive you, they lay in wait. But we're just to speak the truth in love and that we may grow up into things into him who is the head Christ. So, in winding this up this morning, um, in Ephesians, here we have the fulfillment of Psalm 68. And uh, let me just quote my friend J. Vernon McGee as he comments on, on this particular verse 18 in, in um, Psalm 68. He says, when the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven after his death, I think he did two things. First, he took with him to heaven all those saints of the past who were in paradise. These are the Old Testament saints. God has saved them on credit. I like that wording. Up to that time. But our Lord paid the redemptive price for them when he died on the cross. He took them, the spirits of these just men made perfect in the presence of God. Then secondly, he gave gifts to men on earth so that today he carries on his work through those to whom he has given those gifts. Every person, this is for you right now, who's in the body of Christ, you have a gift. Not all gifts are the same gifts, of course. As you can see, this is a marvelous verse. So Dwight, what do we take home and what do we learn from all this? We've had a Bible study on angels, where they came from. Some good, some bad. There's a spiritual war that's going on. And so Ephesians, Paul tries to wrap this all up in chapter six by saying, finally, brethren. And that's what I'll say this morning as we wrap this up on a study about angels and the resurrection. Finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord 
and in the power of his might. Make sure you put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand, notice, against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. That's the angelic realm. Against the rulers of darkness in this age, against a spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God that you will be able to withstand in the evil day. Boy, I think we're living in an evil day today. (laughs) Anybody want to say amen to that? It's only getting worse. The days are getting darker and more evil. And then he says, basically, hang in there. Having done all to stand, stand. Stand, therefore, having girded yourself with truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Have your feet shod with the feet of the preparation of the gospel. And above everything else, Paul says, take the shield of faith, which you'll be able to, to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You know what a fiery dart is? You know that? Anything that can get you to trip up. Some accusation. He's called a slander for a reason. To try to uh, defame you or just try you to get off, get off course and give up. And Paul's saying, don't do it. I would add one more. Make sure you carry your sword with you wherever you go. It's sharp and powerful. And uh, the, the sword here is none other than the word. And the example for doing spiritual warfare is be aware that the Bible knows, I mean, the devil knows the Bible pretty darn good. When he tempted Jesus, what did he tempt him with? He quoted scripture. And Jesus just took it and put it in a proper context. And after a while, the devil left him because he couldn't stand up against it putting in in the proper context. All right, I happen to read and my wisdom for today this, this week, and I will close with this. This is Pastor Chuck, um, and it's called, this was December 12th, so just a couple days ago, Why Jesus Came. Why did he come? And he quotes First John 3, verse 8. For this purpose the Son of Man was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Make no mistake about it. Satan hates you. He wants to destroy you. He will try every way possible to deceive you onto a path that leads to death, a path of rebellion against God. Jesus warned us that the devil has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He will rob you of a blessed life. He will kill your relationship, if he can, with God and with others. He'll try to destroy your reputation and ultimately even your life. One of the works of the devil is the power of death. But Jesus destroyed that power by bringing us eternal life in contrast to Satan's destructive goals. For you, Jesus came that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. Closing, do you have that life this morning? If you look at the big picture, the reason Jesus came, according to 1 John 3, was to destroy the works of the devil and give you an abundant life. Amen? We can leave it at that. Let's stand and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. As we make our way through the Psalms, what can we say, Lord? We're humbled that indeed this book is entirely all about Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you as our faith is increased as we study your word. We pray for the gifts of the Spirit, Lord. We pray that we would be exercising those that you've given to us. 
And uh, Lord, we promise to give you all credit and all the glory, for we know that every good and perfect gift comes from above. So Lord, we give you all the credit and all the glory, and we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.